So, in a way, okay. <laughs> in a way, uh, what I want to talk about tonight is uh, it could be seen as a follow-up on the question about what is purification today, purification of heart mind. As Dara said, it's not exactly something we do. But essentially, it's uh, transforming the habits, uh, the habit, habitual mental states that arise in the citta, the mind-heart. I think I explained before that word citta in Pali means both mind and heart. It doesn't have the split we give it in our language. Um, transforming the habits that obscure the clear and accurate recognition of reality and the habits, uh, yata bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment. The habits that obscure it, greed, hatred, confusion, um, and that lead us into all kinds of unnecessary suffering, both internally and in our speech and actions. So essentially this is at the heart of the Four Noble Truths, the essential uh, primary teaching, said to be the teaching of all the Buddhas, certainly this Buddha that we have some teachings from. And what I essentially want to talk about tonight is the second noble truth, the cause of unsatisfactoriness dukkha as the Buddha explains it, which is a Pali word tanha. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Now, I know we haven't gone through the Four Noble Truths. We will. I'm just going to mention them briefly. The first, of course, uh, to, to be understood that there is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, unreliability in life. Both the aspect of pain, obvious suffering, uh, sickness, death, and all of that. The fact that that happens and waking up doesn't stop that from happening. Uh, the unreliability of constant change. There's nothing to hold on to and that there's no inherent self-existence. That's dukkha, first noble truth. The unsatisfactory is the word I like. And the Buddha then is saying that this, the cause of the origin is this tanha. That's what I want to talk about tonight. The third noble truth being that there is a cessation, an ending of dukkha with the ending of tanha, of clinging, of craving. And the fourth, the Noble Eightfold Path, the path of life, of practice for understanding, waking up, exploring this, what we're all doing now. So, the second truth, I want to read it from the sutta. This is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. I use dukkha because suffering, I think, is too narrow of a translation. And it leads us to think that all unpleasant is going to go away when we understand tana, and it isn't. So I'll use dukkha as unreliable. This is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving, this tanha, which produces repeated renewal of being which is bound up with delight and lust and which seeks pleasure now here and now there, namely craving for sense pleasures, craving for being, craving for states, craving for existence, second one, and craving for 
sometimes translated as non-existence, vivavatana, it's also like craving the, the wanting stuff to go away that we don't like. So in a way, this, this, and I want to talk about exploring it, but this tana isn't only greed. It really encompasses, you know, the, 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 the craving, the thirst. The best translation, the closest translation for tanha is thirst. This thirst for pleasure, this thirst for being, this thirst for something to not be. So it encompasses all the kalesa, all the confusion. So tanha does not vanish, does not, we do not abandon it through an act of will, which we probably know, but we keep trying. We can, okay, I get it. You talk about it tonight, you read about it, I get it. She finally convinced me it's no good, so I'm giving it up. It's not the path of happiness, you know. If only, right? It's not abandoned by an act of will. Conversely, it doesn't mean you're a sad specimen of a human being because you haven't yet given up tanha. And you would if you had any, you know, strength at all. It's, you know, it's not really how it works. But wisdom, panya, recognizing accurately is, and the steady mindfulness, the stability through steady mindfulness and samadhi, stability of mind, is the condition for clear seeing. And the clear seeing, the wisdom, is, is what allows panya, what allows tanha to, in a moment, evaporate. Not because wisdom hates it, right? <laughs> Hating is really an aspect of tanha. It's because when we recognize accurately in that moment, and there's only moments, craving doesn't make any sense. So it, it's abandoned. The, there's a word, it's one of the, talked about the whole, the train up to liberation called nibida, which is often translated as disenchantment. That's really what it is. The wisdom sees through the craving. There's a disenchantment with what's craved and it drops away. The example that's often given for disenchantment is if you have a hungry dog and it comes, wild dog comes running up and he finds this big bone and he like grabs a hold of it. But that bone has been out in the desert being bleached for like a hundred years. There is not one speck of anything that could give that dog anything, no marrow, no nothing. So it's just dried up old bone. And so the dog starts on it, but immediately it's apparent there's nothing there. As much as the dog wants some pleasure, some, there's nothing there that bone can't get, give it. Say, so, oh, that's just how it is. You don't keep wanting the bone. Wanting makes no sense. You put it down and walk away. That's nibida. That's disenchantment. That's, in a moment, the freedom from tanha, the freedom from the dukkha, the unreliability. A lot of people aren't really very interested in disenchantment. And that, (laughs) therein, (laughs) lies the problem. Uh, That wasn't casually said, and it's actually quite deep in us.
So this talk, what I'm trying to, my intention with this talk, of course, is giving a lot of information, but really my intention is as an invitation to all of us to actually turn to mindfulness wisdom, to actually explore this aspect of experience that we call tanha, as it arises, how it acts, how it passes. Because it's simply a mental state that arises and passes in a particular moment of citta, many, many moments of citta. But when we're meeting it with right attitude, with just the attitude of this interested mindfulness, it's as worthy an object of mindfulness wisdom as anything else. And so, so really that's my invitation here and everything I'm talking about is to just let us turn the mindfulness onto the tanha, to explore it, see what it actually is so that it loses its mystique. It quits driving the bus. We can actually see what's going on. What is it nature? How does it arise? How does it behave? And then how do we behave when we're not recognizing tanha is kind of in the forefront of the mind at the moment? So what we call mind, moments of, of consciousness with mental qualities arising and passing is not a steady state at all. It's an activity. So every moment is a new arising quality of mind and heart. And that's what allows our practice. That's what allows investigation. That's what allows us to notice, in this case, tanha arising, notice in the moments it's present how it acts, notice when it goes away. And then notice that you expect, now I've conquered tanha and it's gone. <laughs> and, and how come I have to keep going through this over and over and over? You know, we think, okay, once done, that's it. We're so disappointed. But this, who knows, 10 million mind moments in a day. I mean, actually they said 17 trillion in the blink of an eye. But let's stay with 10 million in a day. It's already a lot. And <laughs> our job is just to keep coming back and look and explore so everything I say tonight is in, from that, trying just to pique our interest, our exploration, and our trust in the Dhamma. Our trust that when, when the obscuration isn't there and there's accurate recognition, you don't have to figure out how to abandon that craving. It stops making sense in that moment. And it's like, wow, <laughs> wow. So... First, to start talking about maybe some ideas we have about tanha craving, often translated as, you know, wanting, desire, greed, all the different words. But as you know, this is not only greed, it's also pushing away. One of the questions, one of the confusions that comes up a lot when we're talking about it, or thinking about it, not exactly just being there, feeling that thirst, but thinking about it. You know, well, what's wrong with wanting things? We only would do something if we want things. What's wrong with wanting a better world? What's wrong with wanting a good relationship? What's wrong with wanting peanut butter at dinner? What's wrong, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. What's wrong with wanting awakening? What's wrong with wanting to practice, right? And then we get all confused. And something, this is my particular thing, but recognizing that tanha is referring, it's a label for a state of heart, 
a state of mind. Tanha is about the quality in the mind and heart, not about the object. All of those questions, what's wrong with wanting blah, 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 all the attention gets focused on the object. And then we start getting confused. But tanha, thirst, this, let's say leaning, I need to have, I want to have. And then it strengthens into grasping, upadana, holding on, clinging. It's the state in the heart, in the mind. And so there comes to be a linguistic confusion because in English, the word desire or the word want can actually be referring to very different qualities or states of heart and mind, very different mental states. And so it's a kind of symptomatic of the whole way our delusion works in so many different levels that all our attention is focused on the object and we don't actually notice what's going on in the mind-heart. So it's a linguistic thing. In Pali, tanha, this word when I've described thirst, is very specific. There's another word, chanda, that is essentially it's a neutral word. Chanda is translated as kind of a, a kind of an excitement, a desire to do, an energy, you know, an interest. Sometimes it's translated as zeal, a desire to act. So depending what it's paired with, there's a word dhamma-chanda. So then there's this, this interest, this zeal, this willingness to act that is, is a wholesome quality that gives us the energy, the aspiration to practice the dhamma. So when we say, what's wrong with wanting awakening? You have to want to be able to practice. We're talking about this chanda energy. We're not talking about tanha. They're very different states of mind and heart. If we're only looking at the object, we never even notice the difference. And then we get really confused. So there's good desires, there's bad desires, and we go, well, what the heck? But so chanda is also, there's another pairing of it, kama chanta. Kama, not, not kama as karma, but kama chanta as the excitement of sense pleasures. Leading into, really, that's the first... Um, Hindrance, not wholesome. That same zeal energy, but focused on the excitement of sense desires, which takes us into tanha. So that's chanda. So there can be dhamma chanda for zeal to do, to do totally wholesome things. The same object, though, even take wanting enlightenment, okay? My guess is, Maybe many of you experience the thought is, you know, I really am dedicated to wanting enlightenment. The internal experience is one of huge suffering and frustration. Have you ever experienced that? Am I making that up? <laughs> so we look and we say, well, but what's wrong with wanting? You know, it's an aspiration. What's the difference? You know, we get all worked up. Turn the attention around. That's tanha, this thirst this craving, this quality that when it's present in the chitta and unrecognized, we suffer, we don't see accurately. So here we want to really start exploring it. So the same thing, peanut butter for tea. You know, you're just hungry, you need to go eat. Nothing wrong with that. We say, I want to eat. Maybe you're hungry, maybe you're not, but I've got to have peanut butter. 
or I do not want another peanut butter. If they have peanut butter, again, I'm going to scream, you know. I'm going to write a note and put it on the bulletin board for the <laughs> well-being of all the yogis. It's not my personal preference. It's for everyone's well-being. And I just want to say here and now, when that thought occurs to you about anything, we beg you, we beg you, do not put the note on the bulletin board. <laughs> Take a 24-hour period. See if it's still life and death for the benefit of all beings that this note goes up. It may have changed in a 24-hour period. The, the qualities in your mind state may have changed. So we call that yogi mind. Tejaniya said, I don't know if someone said that, it's, it's great. It's like the, the kalesa, greed in this case, or aversion, exaggerates. It does, doesn't it? It's like peanut butter is like, you know, the bane of the planet when you're feeling that. It exaggerates. Concentration magnifies. When those two come together, it's not a good combination. <laughs> we, we, kind of, we call it yogi mind. It happens. It happens to all of us. You know, because there is strong concentration. And again, you know, you might be quite much more focused than you were 10 days ago, even though you don't think it. And it might be with a breath or something neutral or something wholesome. But an unwholesome, you know, kalesa comes roaring up. We don't quite see it. And it, all that focus, that magnification goes in and boom, you know, <laughs> it takes over. And we all have that, you know. It's like, oh, I'm just the worst person who ever existed for whatever reason. And when you say the reason... The next day, you go, huh? Huh? You can't even imagine it. But anyway, that's a sidetrack. So, so to begin, I want to talk a little bit, invite us to explore so we learn to recognize it and see. Don't believe me or the Buddha, but as he said, he offers his teaching for us to come and see, explore, and learn to recognize with, with mindfulness wisdom, satipanya, when tanha, this craving, this thirst is present, how you recognize it, and, and what's the effect of it? Why is it uh, a problem? Why did the Buddha pick this out of everything as the cause of dukkha? So we turn around and take a look at that state. So I'm just to say some things about it. You may see your own things. And most of these we know, but if we really knew, right? We know, but we forget. Because it's so seductive. I mean, we've spent our life really in the thrall of that's the only way we really know to be happy, to be at peace, to, to have some pleasant experience. And that thirst, that leaning into it is just, is just what we've learned. And because we keep getting focused out on the object, again, we don't recognize what's actually going on. We're giving all the potential for peace, for ease, for happiness, whatever it is, in that particular object of mind, physical or mental, at that time. And it's just so seductive. It just pulls us along. My brother used to have a, a hound dog. They call it a, a red bone kind of hound dog, a sweet dog hunting dog, bred for hunting, which of course it didn't get to hunt in, in the downtown Atlanta, but he did have, a, <laughs> did have a backyard. Sweet dog, but it was like the nose is so, is so highly bred for sense. 
And that dog was like, he was led by the nose. He would come in the house and then his, just would follow his nose to every new smell, every new thing. When I would come to visit, if I left the suitcase open, he'd be immediately in the suitcase in any like dirty clothes or anything that had a scent of person on it. He was immediately in there, you know, and pulling it out of the suitcase and chewing it on it. And when he'd go outside in the yard, he couldn't just go play like a dog. He just had his nose on the ground and had to go around. And that, that to me, is craving. That's how it works. We're just led by it, led by it, led by it, and no clue that there's another way. There's something else going on here. You know? So it gives us this kind of tunnel vision, too. When the craving is strong and we're on the thing, that's all we want. Everything else is in the way. Have you noticed that? Even with little things. Or like when you're in line, <laughs> friend of, I can see I'm really sidetracking, but a, a friend told me, I thought when, you know, when you're in line to get on a bus, or something, and there's not seats, so you don't know that there's going to be enough seats, and there's a big crowd. I'm from New York. Since my New Yorkness really comes out, I could blame it on New York, but I have to blame it on craving. It's like, Shh, go for it, and everyone else is in your way, in the way. You get in the seat, you sit down, Ah, oh, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, everybody else. I hope you all get a seat once I have mine. But until I have it, you know, tunnel vision, craving, and get away. <laughs> My friend told me many years ago, he was in somewhere in China, way out in the middle of nowhere, Dunduan, I think. And like one bus a day came to get out of there. So he'd been there, done his thing, and then he's waiting like six in the morning for the bus. And... So the bus comes, and it's like, you know, a mob of people. And it's like, while fighting, they all get in the bus, they get in, and it goes, and he's just standing there. Like, he didn't want to, like, fight. He's trying to be the nice, you know, tourist. So they all get in, and it goes away. He's like, oh, it's 24 hours till the next bus comes. <laughs> so he made sure he got on the next one. <laughs> so abandoning craving doesn't mean we can't see what's going on. Anyway, so, so it's like it, it, that lead us by the nose, the tunnel vision, but the seduction is that real promise of happiness, as you know. You know, we really think this next thing is going to do it. And, of course, we've talked about it, and we will more, the whole sense of, you know, not being... Um, sufficient, it accentuates our lack of wholeness, all that. But I'm just going to stay really with exploring it in our present moment experience as a quality of heart that's often experienced concomitantly. There's some physical expressions that may come with it so that we can really explore and then see what's going on in the mind and body when tanha is present. So it has that that seductive quality, too, of, you know, the next one's going to do it. If this one didn't, the next one's going to do it. If this one didn't. Sports is, watching professional sports is a lot like that, isn't it? I happen to be, uh, for what, God knows why, uh, a big fan of professional tennis. And so it's really been interesting the last couple of years to watch what goes on in my mind around that. Really interesting. So the sense of, the, the mind wants to pick one person that it's kind of wanting to win. 
And once that happens, all this energy, every back forth, back forth, back forth, and every point, there's a sense of wanting it to go a certain way, wanting, oh, okay, that one was good. You know, there's happiness. Well, no, that one wasn't good. Oh, unhappy, but now there's another one. This one will be good. Oh, that was good, but now there has to be another one. This has to be good. This has to be good. And no, 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 nothing. This has to be good. This, you know, and then finally they win the match, but that's one match, then there's seven matches, and finally the tournament, the tournament's over, and if that one person out of 128 people won the tournament, like, phew, what <laughs> happiness. But it never ends. You get a day and then there's the next tournament. I don't know how these people do it, honestly, how they can be a professional athlete. And then there's another tournament. The whole thing starts over again. Oh, and I notice in myself, you know, if I'm watching and it's two people that I really don't care, it's actually much more pleasant. <laughs> like, I'm really watching. Wow, it's really nice. I'm not like, you know, oh, wanting, no, wanting, no. Oh, look at that. That's very interesting, very skillful. I can turn it off when I've had enough. I don't have to, like, or going online shopping. Like, I was looking for a rug. Just pick one website. Just go to eBay. Put in the size rug you want. 10,200 choices, right? I'm not exaggerating. Okay, I think, well, there's no way I'm going to look at 10,200 choices, but it comes up and, you know, well, just one more page. Just one more page. You know, five hours later, you're like... And we think this is making us happy. That's the seduction. We're clueless. As the Buddha said in the definition, the definition, seeking delight now here and now there. And it's so interesting is if we don't turn around and look at the craving, we can easily mistake the craving itself for the delight. You know, we, we mix it up. So seeking delight. Get off, you know, after five hours. Okay, I do turn it off before that, the eBay. You know, I feel horrible. <laughs> I have a headache. My eyes are bugging out. You know, half the day is over. I didn't find a rug anyway. And even if you did, it doesn't look like what it looked like on that. So it's a waste of time completely. And then we turn around and say, oh, what can I do now? Maybe I'll have some ice cream. You know, it's, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? I have a very, very wise friend. We had this conversation that he knew perfectly well. We're having a conversation. This is a person who's very um, careful, always likes to have a couple of cookies after lunch. Not picking out, not a lot, just two cookies every day after lunch, but has to have two cookies every day after lunch, certain kinds of cookies. So we were laughing and talking about craving, and I said, you know, this is really, you know, the essence of samsara, thinking those cookies will make you happy. He goes, but they, they do make me happy. I said, right, okay. But what about when you can't get a cookie? He says, oh, I'll always get a cookie. <laughs> this keeps us bound to samsara. Samsara, the endless, the red bone hound, the next, the next, the next, wanting a sense pleasure, wanting to become, wanting a state, wanting an all thinking this is what's going to bring peace and happiness, not really recognizing it. It's really poignant. It's really touching that we do this. 
the Buddha speaks about what Bhikkhu Bodhi describes as three movements in the unfolding process of insight. You say it around Tana, you say it around many things. The three movements are what you would call, he calls uh, recognizing the gratification in a particular experience, recognizing the danger in a particular experience, and then recognizing the escape. This is from him, from the Buddha. Before my enlightenment, O bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, it technically means monks, but it also means anyone who's practicing. So bhikkhus, like he's speaking to us. While I was still a bodhisattva, means before he was the enlightened Buddha, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? What is the escape from the world? Then it occurred to me, Whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification. That the world is impermanent, bound up with dissatisfaction, with unreliability, and subject to change. This is the danger in the world. The abandoning of desire and lust for the world, this is the escape from the world. You notice he's saying the abandoning of desire and lust. He's not saying abandon the world. There's a huge difference. And when we talk about renunciation, which Greg did a little, and I I don't have time to get into tonight, but no, renunciation is the abandoning of the craving that keeps us bound to samsara. It doesn't mean we're necessarily abandoning the world. So that there is gratification. There is. So even though the Buddha talks so much about the danger of sense pleasures, the danger being because they're so seductive, because we get so lost, because we don't bring in mindfulness, wisdom, satipanya, and investigate what's really happening, we just keep getting sucked in like the examples I gave. But it's true that there's gratification. So sometimes people say, I mean, we hear this frequently, well, if there's no clinging, if I'm not supposed to cling to have thirst for pleasant experience, was everything's just all the same, who cares, you don't like anything, you you go out in nature, you got so what, you know, it's green, it's gray, who cares, it's a turkey, it's a worm, who cares, you know, and I think, again, people aren't interested in nibbida, but that's not what it is, Thich Nhat Hanh. It is important to distinguish between indulging in sense pleasures and the joy and happiness that we experience when we are mindful and at peace. Attachment to sense pleasures brings about suffering and entanglement, both in the present moment and the future, for ourselves and others. The Buddha often talks about agitation through clinging. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying the attachment to sense pleasures. But the joy and happiness of a peaceful mind bring neither suffering nor attachment in the present or in the future for ourselves or for others. So we can really here, for example, explore the difference, not putting a should, but explore the difference in, in terms of, let's just turn in terms of nature. You go out and see the beautiful moon. 
there can be a real appreciation, there can be a sense of joy, there could be a real sense of craving thirst. They'll feel quite different in the heart-mind. Explore that. And to explore it means we have to to have the, the willingness to trust, to understand that when craving arises, it's arising due to causes and conditions. It's a habit of mind. So we're not talking about craving, just saying, I'm not going to let it come. I'm not going to see it. You know, we don't have to be afraid of it. If we meet it with wisdom, well, we can't control the wisdom, but we keep meeting it with mindfulness, the wisdom comes. We don't need to be afraid of craving. It's another mind state. So it comes. There's joy. You're appreciating the moon and the craving comes in. Notice that narrowing. Notice that kind of leaning forward. It actually... The craving actually brings a sense of dissatisfaction with it rather than trying to fix it. And then it tries to fix it, but, you know, it actually is what brought it up in the first place. Don't believe me. Look and see. But so, not to be afraid, but really watch. But to see the difference. There is appreciation. We don't hate sense pleasures, but we really want to see the difference between just being, it's like this now. It's exquisitely silent. It's just like this the happiness of the mind at rest, of seeing clearly. And, oh, I wish I'd gotten up at five to see that moon the other night and I didn't do it in another 150 years. <laughs> oh, that's nice, but it's only a quarter. And it was so nice, the, you know. Okay, we're in a whole other world now. Be there with that. So... Notice, uh, well, I already talked about how when there's craving, part, oh, so that's the gratification, the danger, we really start to notice. He says the Buddha, the danger is the fact that craving can't satisfy us because of the impermanence, which intellectually we know, right? But I want to emphasize more the danger being that seductive quality that we don't really recognize, something changed, but we don't really reckon, like with the tennis, we just go, okay, the next one, the next one, the next one, or the cookies, or, you know, the next page on eBay. Instead of seeing everything's changed, there's nothing to cling to, the clinging just keeps bringing us to the next thing, this seductive, onward-going quality that just keeps us locked in. To me, that, just me personally, that's one of the biggest dangers, if we don't see it. If we overlook the heart-mind space of clinging and keep focusing on the object, we miss this danger. Because even though the object changes, we always find another object. And even if we don't get it, we have reasons why we didn't get it. And the object isn't necessarily a sense pleasure, it's a state of mind. You know, often we can get really locked into craving for states of mind here. Probably that hasn't happened to anybody. But, you know, it does happen sometimes to a rare meditator that they're craving a particular experience. And if you get it, then you lose it and it's suffering. If you don't get it, you're miserable. So either way, look at the craving (laughs) rather than being satisfied with the object. So that's one the narrowing that all the craving mind sees is what it craves and everything else is in the way. Like I was saying about, you know, getting on a bus or getting on a plane. I do that a lot, get on planes, and I get to watch that all the time. And you're waiting, am I going to have an empty seat next to me? 
Will there be an empty seat? And everyone getting on is the enemy <laughs> until they're past. Maybe, 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 you know, until the doors close, you know, just watching that. That's the suffering, you know, that's the constriction, the separation, a sense of me versus others. And that's the unwholesomeness that we can't see accurately. To me, the biggest danger, the most poignant one, is what I mentioned in the beginning, that when there's tanha in the mind, in terms of greed, in terms of aversion, in terms of delusion, that distorts accurate recognition. That is the veil that blocks recognizing, you know, our true nature. That is the veil that keeps us locked into samsara, that keeps us from recognizing the radiance of the pure citta, as the Buddha talked about. And we get locked into, oh, we want more, we want more, we want more. We don't see that it's the very wanting that's the thing that's blocking, as Ajahn Amaro likes to talk about, the natural peace and ease of mind and body. It's our natural peace and ease. The tana is what blocks it. I think someone, I think maybe Dara said, this quotation, how wisdom, panya, when, the, when chitta is recognizing accurately, when there's wisdom in the mind, it recognizes the natural characteristics of whatever the object is, sense, pleasure, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental experience. So it recognizes maybe a sound, it might recognize it as a bell, but it recognizes that it's impermanent, that it's changing, that it's got no intrinsic inherent stability that it's unreliable. I don't mean with every sound, if there's wisdom, you go, oh yes, hearing, impermanent, unreliable. Uh, it just knows that. It recognizes it accurately. Craving doesn't arise. So my aversion doesn't arise. Delusion, when these qualities are present in the citta, it distorts perception and we don't recognize these qualities accurately. But the object is recognized. So there's still hearing, it's still a bell, but the impermanent qualities, the unreliable non-self qualities aren't recognized. And that's when we just get into a whole lot of trouble because the way we respond and relate is what keeps the tanha going. It distorts our perception. So to me, in a way, that is the most, the most poignant aspect of the danger of tanha, of craving, of aversion, of confusion. Escape. Well, first, to begin with, rather not jumping to complete absence, abandonment of tanha, when you notice it arising, our tendency, uh, it in itself, and you don't know this unless you explore, you don't believe me, in my experience, the experience of thirst, of craving, of leaning forward mentally, physically is unpleasant. And our deeply conditioned way to escape from unpleasant is what? What do we do when something's unpleasant? What do we do to get happy? The Buddha said it's the only escape an unenlightened worldling that's most of us, I would assume. <laughs> I love that world, putajana, unenlightened worldling. The only escape we know, 
we know no other escape from unpleasant than the seeking out of and experiencing pleasure. So the minute an unpleasant experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, just this simple Vedana that James introduced the other morning and I think Aaron will talk about more fully in a couple of nights. It's such a key experience. It's so subtle. We don't notice it. Unpleasant Vedana in a sight, a sound, an internal feeling, a mood comes up. Boom! The mind goes towards something pleasant. That's just what we've learned. And as the Buddha said, we know of no other escape the whirling from unpleasant and the seeking of pleasure. And then that becomes the habit that underlies the mind. We seek pleasure. We have the habit of resistance to the unpleasant and neither nu- neutral, neutral, what? Is there neutral? We've got no clue in life. What's going on with neutral? So <laughs> that is really, to me, it's so poignant. That's really one of the most poignant things. So Knowing that that's the case, maybe we haven't really, it wouldn't be our first response to keep the sati, the mindfulness going when tanha arises, when you notice that closing in or that leaning forward or the tightness or however you notice it. Rather than jumping to get something else or go to aversion and blame yourself, just that's the next arising experience. It's a mental experience. Let the mindfulness meet it. Ah, how does it feel? What does it feel like? Is there a reflection in the physical? And so it is, I generally find it unpleasant, but look and see. Turn the attention back whenever you notice tanha. So this is something we're going to have a lot of chance to explore. That's great. Instead of it being a problem, it is a problem when we're not aware of it, Instead of being a problem, people coming in, oh no, it's hopeless. I'm seeing craving so much and they get so, you know, kind of disheartened, understandably. Why? Because we don't want it there and it's unpleasant and we want to be happy. So if we was, okay, every time you notice craving, that's an opportunity to meet it with mindfulness wisdom. Not to make it go away. That's not mindfulness. We know that, right? We know that if you're mindful properly, that doesn't mean the bad thing goes away. Do we all know that? (laughs) That's not the point of mindfulness. (laughs) The point of mindfulness is to meet what's happening just as it is. And the steadiness of mindfulness allows for the wisdom to see how does it act. So when you notice Tana, explore it. Like some ways are like, how do you even know it's there? Is it a thought? Is it a physical uh, kind of physical experience? Like I get a kind of tightness in my chest. It's almost like physically leaning forward. Sometimes I notice like, like really like a, almost like a measurable tightness in my mind. Sometimes it's just the thought. You notice you've been going for the last five minutes. Oh yeah, and then when I get to lunch, I'm going to do this. Oh yeah, when five more minutes and I can go to bed. Oh yeah, how am I going to get to have the shower at this bed? And after a while you notice, hmm, This could be Tanha. It's possible. (laughs) Possible. So then, instead of going, oh no, no, how can I stop it? Land in it. Bring in the attention. How does it feel mentally, physically? What thoughts does it bring up, if any? How does it affect perceptions when it's in the mind? How does it feed our intentions and our choices? How do we act when there's Tanha in the mind? Really hang out with it. 
and explore it. And sometimes, you know, it's so strong, you just can't not do the thing. I know we're talking simple things within the bounds of the precepts, okay, but simple things, right? You just can't. Well, something that happens for me in walking meditation, and somebody walks by, and I just want to look. Why? It's not like it's a horrible thing to look, but the craving to look can be so strong. So I'll notice the craving, and sometimes the craving's so strong, I can't not look. It's basically the craving stronger than the mindfulness. That's all that's happening. So I look. You do it, bring the mindfulness along with you. You're acting from the craving, but you can still bring the mindfulness along with you and see what happens. So an example for me, so I was walking quite present, mindfulness, craving, I gotta look, I gotta look, I look right away, seeing right away there's a judgment. They're better than me, they're worse than me, oh, that person, or what are they, so there's the judgment, that's unpleasant, then there's self-judgment for judging, and it was like, that was really a good move, right? That was really a a good thing to do, to look there. And then you come back, and you're like, walking, and it was fine before. Bring the awareness along with you. That's where the wisdom comes in. Sooner or later, it goes, oh, that craving doesn't really make sense. It really doesn't. So first we're able to just hang with it. Okay, it's unpleasant. You're not going to die from it. I really promise. You're not going to die from it. And if you keep hanging from that particular craving, walk back and forth. Make yourself a pact once in a while if you get interested. You're just going to keep walking until that particular craving dies away. It will. And probably a lot quicker than you think. Keep watching. Oh, it died away. Good, I'm out of here. No, keep watching. (laughs) Keep the mindfulness going. Notice what it's like. It's like, for me, the craving goes. If you stay mindful, it's like, ah, peace. And that's the, number, that's the natural peace and ease of mind that we were looking for in the first place. Why in, in the world the mind thought looking at the person passing was going to give me that peace and ease, I don't know. But notice when the craving goes. Over and over we do this. We really learn. We can, okay, it's unpleasant experience. It's telling me a story that is really hard not to believe. Don't set yourself, I can't, if you set yourself, I shouldn't do, then you're just bringing in more tightness. But rather just set, okay, you're really going to just let mindfulness be there, whatever you're doing, and the wisdom comes. Because this is yata bhuta, things as they've come to be, as they really are, you really see that the craving is not serving the purpose we think it is. That it's actually the cause of the dissatisfaction. Literally in the moment, as well as in the future, as well as in our understanding, in the exact moment, it's the cause of the dissatisfaction. So hanging with craving. Okay, it's just mental and physical sensations. It's really not such a big deal. A lot of the time, sometimes it is. Don't beat yourself up about that. But there's a ton of little times when you can really explore it here. Ah peace, just the peace of the mind and heart, being with things as they are. You can see I'm not going to get to a lot of this.
All right. Um, I want to read a couple of quotations because I like them. From Ajahn Chah, Why We Don't Recognize the Craving. He talks about the flood. He's talking about sense pleasures, but I want you to know this is also mental experience. Views and opinions is something the Buddha talked about very much as a source of grasping. And I think I'll give a, talk about it in a whole other talk because it's really huge. We hold on to a thought, a view. It's like this. This is true. Everything else is false. Of course, we don't say that. Then we're attached to it. The attachment is the problem. It brings us into conflict with ourselves and others. So it's not just sense pleasures, but it's that same craving, that narrowing, that inability in the grip of the craving to see that there's any other possibility, to appreciate anything else. It's just this. Anyway, so we're sunk, Ajahn Chah, sunk in sights, in sounds, in smells, in tastes, in bodily sensations. You might think that sounds like our mindfulness practice. We're aware of all of these, but we're sunk because we only look at externals. We don't look inwardly, meaning looking at what's going on in the mind at that moment. So going on, this is a still Ajahn Chah. Saying how, and I'm sure you've probably heard this, but it's so great. The mind within itself is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. Sense impressions, including mental ones, come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow but the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. But really the mind is unmoving and peaceful, just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters, The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to the sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. So if we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. That's the key. This is the power of mindfulness and stability of mind to allow us to know fully the sense impressions, to allow us to know fully, for wisdom to know, not personally, the qualities of the tanha in the mind and the qualities of the peace and stillness when it vanishes. So this is, James reminded me, this is one of my favorite quotations from the Buddha, from the Sutta Napata. Bhikkhu Bodhi just put out a new translation of the Sutta Napata, which is really, the Sutta Napata is meant, it's it's generally accepted as one of the earliest of the books of the suttas. So some people think it's maybe the closest to thinking this is really what the Buddha taught. And some of it's quite radical. And so he's talking about non-attachment to views. It's really quite radical. Anyway, this is from the Sutta Napata. For some people contact, the point where sense plus object meet 
is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity. And because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does. And so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. I just love that. We're not trying to get rid of. We see just what contact does. And so their craving ends. It's not an act of will. It's the natural effect of a moment of wisdom in the heart, in the mind. And the steady mindfulness with just what is occurring. And Tanha is a perfect example is what gives us that possibility. Well, okay, I'll just end with two other quotations then. This is from Chokinima Rinpoche, who is one, a brother of Mingyur Rinpoche and Soni Rinpoche. He's also a wonderful teacher. He was saying, this is like a little more Tibetan re- framework, but he's saying, saying the mind, the pure mind is the Buddha. When the mind is free of reference points and grasping at characteristics of sense impressions, then it is unobscured, unveiled. And when in that state, it is the Buddha, because in that state, all obscurations, all phenomena naturally dissolve. Just the arising and the passing. They're naturally dissolving anyway. But in that state, that's what's recognized. And then I'll just end with a suggestion of, from the Buddha, a reflective contemplation. I was just um, doing a self-retreat, I think I mentioned in November, reading, I was reading some different things during it, Buddhist stuff. And this is like so different from the habit of my mind works. So this is a specific instruction saying, so in terms of disenchantment or dispassion, often what we're suggested is to notice the drawbacks of being involved, a lot of what I'm talking about tonight, the danger, the drawbacks of tanha and why it doesn't work. But another way to come around it sometime says, is to actually incline the mind towards the deathless, incline the mind towards that natural purity. And this is the Buddha, just as a reflection. A bhikkhu reflects thus, this is peaceful, this is sublime, that is, the stilling of all activities, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, nibbana. Instead of being all caught up, and what should I do? How can I do it? What can I get? How can I stop it? This is peaceful. This is sublime. That is the stilling of all activities, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion. Nibbana. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.